good issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 269 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Leelan and this weekend I gave myself teenage angst flashbacks by listening to a lot of Tori Amos. I love a bit of Tori Amos. Was it Little Earthquakes? Was it full teenage? Of course it was Little Earthquakes. I'm not a monster. But also it just absolutely threw me back in time. Proust's Tori Amos. That's what it was. What's what's triggered this, Mickey? She's amazing. I kept thinking about it and so I've not listened to that album for so long and I loved it so, so hard. Mm. And I think there was a little bit of, oh, will it stand up? You know, we do a lot of rated or dated and quite often my picks do not stand the test of time. But, you know, it was still incredible. That voice. It's because it was ahead of its time, mm. I think. But I really, I, I mean, suddenly when you're like, is that song about sexual assault? Is that about a sexual assault? That sounds like yeah, it's about a sexual hell. assault. Yeah. Me and a gun. Mm. I did turn that one off. I wasn't ready for that, to uh, be honest, Vicky. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And while I don't think one can have too many plants, I've got too many plants. <laughs> Question, how many do you have and how long does it take you to water them all? I've got 47. Fucking hell. And it takes me... I do them in stages. (laughs) But I reckon a good couple of hours a week I spend watering my plant or moving it to a better position in the Mm. house because it doesn't like the one it's in and all of that stuff, yeah. I'd suggest getting a kitten will absolutely take your plant count down quite Uh, fast. Oh, do they do they not like the plants? They. I know their pronouns. <laughs> Does he not like the plants? Mr. Trousers really likes the plants, Hannah. Yeah, but in a, it's in my tummy now. Yeah. Yes. I've got three in my flat in London and I barely managed to keep them watered, to be honest. Oh, well. I, I have a lot of plants. I don't think I'm too far behind. I say I. It's, I mean, I live with Gary, but he does not do anything with the plants. I have a lot of plants. I'm not too far behind you, Hannah. But like I say, they are dwindling rapidly at the moment. Oh. I'm Jen Offord and this morning, uh, 29th of August, at the time of recording, I made my first Father Christmas-based threat of the year. And I've told you I won't do it again, Jen. I am sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on? Oh, we were watching Hey Dougie and there were some um, walkie-talkies on it and she said, Mummy, can you buy me those? And I said, well, well we, we'll see how Father Christmas feels at Christmas time, shall we? And then there were a few questions about seasons. Obviously, I was happy to oblige. <laughs> you were like, finally, uh, I come uh, into my own. 20th of September, Lyra, 20th of September. That's when autumn starts. Anyway, so, uh, and then she was being a dickhead. And I said, well, I mean, I've told you about the walkie-talkies, but Father Christmas might not be feeling very generous at Christmas time if this kind of behaviour continues. She went, Okay. That's a really non-shouty type threat, Jen, it sounded. It it didn't sound full. You carry on like this, there'll be no Father Christmas. I mean, that's a bit harsh. Oh, no, I agree. When I saw the fact, I thought I'd be interested to see uh, how harsh a threat this is. Oh, no, we do gentle Father Christmas-based threats in this household. Gentle, gentle. At least you then didn't go back up to say, Mummy didn't mean it. I only say that because I was looking after my friend's dog last week and he'd been sent home from the kennels for being naughty. <laughs> and I totally rewarded his behaviour by going, who is a special boy? When I stop him, who is, who is a good boy? Like, not him, he is not a good boy. He has demonstrably been a bad boy. But also, like, negative affirmation doesn't work with animals. You have to just affirm the positive behaviour. You know this, Hannah, you've got cats. He won't know that he's been naughty 
like an hour or so afterwards. I don't think it works with children either. I th- yeah. To be honest, negative. I think, I think like they just they're like, oh, attention, nice. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, quite. Right, that's parenting sorted and also yeah. pet ownership sorted. What else are we doing in this podcast? Oh, yes, I'm chatting to actor Nina Sasanya about the new series of Screw and what teachers Jenny might be up to now. Oh, I always like <laughs> Jenny. I think she got a hard, a hard run in yeah. teachers. Yeah. We talk about that. I chat to senior lecturer in climate science, Dr. Friederika Otto, about climate change and angry weather, which is also the name of her new book. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I am raging about Rubiales and also, I hope, redressing the balance a little bit. And in Mickling or Muckling, <laughs> I have no idea if I've just used that correctly, we're watching 1963's Billy Liar. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Nina. Welcome to Standard Issue. Thank you. So Screw is back on our screens at the end of August. I've managed to see two episodes, which I really, really enjoyed. I was trying to explain Screw to someone the other day, and I couldn't make up my mind whether it was a comedy or a drama or a bit of both. Where would you say it sits? Definitely a bit of both. Particularly this series, it's a bit more dark and a bit more comic. It's got extreme at both ends, this series. But because it's about, it's sort of set in a very serious kind of precinct, mm. I suppose, which is a bit of a microcosm of life or a sort of boiled down version of life, which can't help but be both dramatic and comic. I think if it was only dark and only dramatic it might just be a little bit of a drag. It's one of those situations where the darker something is, the funnier those mm-hmm. moments, the lighter those moments can be because you kind of earn them, I, I hope. That doesn't really help, does it? It's sort of both. <laughs> well, I've got a friend who works in a prison. I can't say much more about it than that because I haven't got his permission to talk about it. But all of the stories he's ever told me have either been A, absolutely hilarious, or B, absolutely horrific. Yeah. And he says the rest is just boredom. It's just huge chunks of boredom in the middle. And you've got some real comedy chops in there. I mean, Jamie Lee O'Donnell, Laura Checkley, who I absolutely love. Yeah, absolutely. Doing some really great comedy stuff. How does it feel to be back in the uniform? What do you feel about (laughs) Lee? She's such an interesting character. She's both easy to like and unbelievably frustrating at the same time. Oh, good. That's sort of what I was aiming for, yeah. Rob Williams, the, the writer, I'm, I'm not even sure if he was sort of aware of how frustrating she can be. But that was sort of one of the things that drew me to her, was that, that, that real enigmatic quality that she has. You just don't, you just don't know what her motives are, mm. in the same way that her colleagues don't, really don't know where she's coming from or what she's aiming for. It's just sort of hope for the best. Getting back in the uniform, really weird, because you, you get back onto the same set, into the same clothes... I have to say, I had a slightly bigger pair of trousers this time. <laughs> I've clearly eaten a lot more. But then I went back to the smaller ones when I'd, I'd lost a bit from hard work, clearly. But you sort of, you step straight back in because nothing changes, which is, I suppose, how it goes in prison. Nothing yeah. changes. It's the same four walls or however many walls we've got, same cells, the same thing that you put on every day. Literally, you go in and put on the same clothes every day. So it was like we'd never left, which was really discombobulating uh, at first and then we were just back in and it was all very normal like we'd never been away you've got some new faces including lee ingleby which i suppose is for them that kind of helps in there you arrive new and everything feels like everybody else has been there for absolutely ages and you are the new person which must be yeah 
Yeah, exactly. And that sort of frisson of walking into somewhere where everybody else seems to know the rules and you're the newbie. Yeah. You know, they. I think they really used that and, and felt that and used it. Prisons are absolutely fascinating places. Whenever I go somewhere on holiday, I always end up visiting. If they've got an old prison, you can go in. I always end up going in it. Like Really? Yeah. Crumlin Jail in, in Belfast, it recommend that anyone go there if they go there. Philadelphia Jail is also amazing to visit. Because I think you learn a lot about, well, you learn a lot about the world by how they treat people that they put behind bars. Absolutely, yeah. Did you guys go into one at all in your prep? In the initial prep, we couldn't because it was all through um, oh, lockdown. Uh, lockdown. It was all, the whole first series was filmed just as we were, well, we was, no, we were still in lockdown, actually. So all the prep for that, everybody was confined. So we did a lot of talking to prison officers. We have advisors that work with us as well. And then for the second series, I know a couple of the actors went into actual prisons. I didn't. It's not the sort of thing that I, it's not the way I kind of work particularly. I'd sort of got to know my prison, my wing of, of Longmarsh prison, and that was my space. And that's how Lee operates in that space. So no, I, I didn't actually personally go to a prison, but it was, it was harder to go anyway. You were saying earlier she's mysterious, Lee. Mm. She certainly is. And to a certain extent, she reminds me of Don Draper because she's got this big secret that she's hiding you know Uh who she who she is is not who everybody thinks she is and it made me think really that if this had been made 20 years ago maybe even 10 years ago that lee would be a man you started off in channel four well but that was where your big break was playing jenny on teachers which is 20 something years ago now let's not think about how long ago at least that makes you and me let's not think about (laughs) that but do you think things have changed in that in that period yeah, things have changed hugely, but I've got a feeling that we're only getting back to a place that we were before. It feels like there used to be a whole lot of middle-aged women that were at the front of TV programmes before I was in television, before I was acting, and that sort of dropped away. And I think we're now getting to a place where we're getting back to that. But I think also that it's what's changed are the actual stories. Those have definitely changed. I mean, in terms of Lee in Screw... We're not particularly talking about her being a woman in a man's prison. We're not particularly talking either about her being a woman of colour in a, in a man's prison. We're talking about her as a character interacting with other characters. And that's, I think, that feels interesting to me. That feels like we've moved somewhere. Because while those issues are still very, very much to, to be talked about and there are stories to be told about those, we can also have a programme where that's not the central issue where it's just it's literally about the characters. Yeah. Not to say that we're shying away from those things because those are the things that I am. And I'm not denying that, you know, we're not trying to deny anything, but we're also just trying to tell some other stories. But, you know, our cast is the main core of the cast are, are three women. That's for once, that's 50% of the, of the main cast. And that feels great. We'll talk more about Sally Wainwright in a bit. But a couple of years ago, I interviewed Sally and I asked her if things were getting better for women on television which is pretty much what I asked you and she said yes but that there still had not been um, primetime drama fronted by a woman of colour and therefore Mm. her official answer was no yeah are you the first that's interesting I can't I can't think of anybody else there was um, a fantastic drama called ah what was it called it was either called Forgiven or Unforgiven. I know there's a different one called Unforgiven with Nicola Walker, but yeah. there was one with Sophie Okonedo and um, That's right, Adrian yes. Lester. Yes. It was fantastic. Yeah. And they didn't give it another series. Don't know why. Yeah, that was also set around prisons. She oh, was, yeah. I think she was an advocate. Yes, she was yeah. a lawyer for a prisoner in America. So it, was, it sort of took in the American penal system as well. Yeah. 
Okay, we mentioned Jenny earlier. What do you think Jenny's doing now? <laughs> do you Jenny? ever think about her? Yeah. Oh, she'll be a headmistress somewhere. Yeah. Ruling the roost. Definitely. Yeah. When I wrote that question down, I thought, come on, you always have to have an answer yourself. Otherwise, it's not fair to ask the question. Okay. Yeah. And what's I your thought answer? Maybe she was running like Avon's council or something, you know, a Bristol <laughs> City Council. I really like Jenny. She's, again, she's a really interesting character. Yeah. Hugely capable. And she had an interior life. All those things that she was dealing with in that circle of people that she had to work with. Yeah. She just dealt with them very in a very capable and quite satisfying way. It was quite satisfying to play her. Although I was never part of the gang. I was, that, was, that was the only thing. Because there was such a great group of people. And playing the outsider, you always want to be part of the gang. <laughs> and she was They were quite hard on Jenny because basically she yeah, was punished for being sensible. Um, for, yeah. you know, not being a dickhead. And not putting up yeah. with any of their, their nonsense. And, yeah. and she was punished yeah. for it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Actually, her and Lee are reasonably, I would say maybe reasonably similar in some ways in that they don't bring them their whole self to work. And you and I both work yeah. in the industries where we're encouraged to bring our whole self to work. And I think sometimes you should be able to leave some of that self at home and uh, just go to work and then keep those two things entirely separate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Particularly as yeah. women. Yeah. Women journalists, yeah. women journalists are really often encouraged to write about, you know, write about what's happened to you. And uh, right. yeah, okay. bring your own trauma along with it. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, yeah. sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But it's certainly not something that happens to men journalists so much. Sally Wainwright, right? She, she is amazing. I love her. I've actually, yeah. We've actually interviewed her three times. I, I'd have her on every single week. Of <laughs> Not only is she really interesting, but she always says something really unexpected as well. She, she absolutely speaks her mind. I'd like to know what you made of working with her in Last Tango in Halifax. And, and also Sarah Lancashire, who is another actress who plays her cards yeah. quite close to her chest. And I admire her yeah. for that. And and Reed as well um, on Last Tango and Nicola Walker. I mean, what yeah. a great... What's a foursome when it's not a triumvirate? I can't think if you include Sally. Anyway, yeah, with those four was, mm. was extraordinary. And Red Productions as well. They were... It's a very female show, just mm. female run, you know. And that was really quite an eye-opener to work on a show where the two leads that I was always working with, because I was always with Sarah or with um, Anne... They sort of ran the thing, and that was a real education, seeing people with steel backbones. And, I mean, there's nothing you could have taught them about how television works because they'd seen it and done it and been with everybody, and everyone was learning from them. And and I'd not quite seen that before, so that was amazing. But also the sense of humour as well is kind of different when when it's... I don't know if it's female-led or what, or what it is. You just, there's just a different atmosphere in the in the room, and the sense of humour is just different. I'm not going to say it's better, but it's because it's different. It feels better at the yeah, time. It feels, yeah. you know, it's a change, and that's fantastic. Working with Sarah was just extraordinary because I think also because of the part I was playing, I was very much protected by her as an actress and as the character. And that's the only show that I've worked with her on. So I don't know how she works when she's playing somebody else. She might be very, very different. But she, she seems to feel everything that she is portraying. And so, yeah, that, that sort of protectiveness and that love sort of came out in, in terms of our acting relationship, which was great. I loved, I loved that job. Really loved it. How did you feel about when you picked up that script? I was warned by the producer that that was going to happen. I mean, I'm not going to lie, it was rotten. I hate it. I didn't want to leave. Why would I? It was a great show and I didn't think they should have killed my character. So, yeah, but they did. That's within a writer's gift. So, yeah. 
What you gonna do? Your character's death in it did sort of go on to dominate, you know, quite a lot of yeah. the plot lines. So of course, um, right, right, right. Yeah, you know, you've done a good job when you're that much missed from it. We're on Skype, so no, we're not. We're on Zoom. We're on Zoom. So on I, Zoom. Zoom. So I feel a little bit like I am in stage. <laughs> stage wasn't just really funny. I mean, it was really funny, but I think it's much more interesting from the point of it is actually exists now as a piece of social history, as in. This is a problem we had within our industry and this is a way we looked and tried to fix it. When you were approached and they said, basically, we're going to film it ourselves, did you think this is brilliant or did you think this is going to be an absolute shit show? I mean, at the time, there was so much... We were all learning about Zoom then, weren't we? It wasn't... This was a word that we kept suddenly saying, like, flotilla during the Jubilee. Suddenly everyone was saying the word flotilla. And so we were all learning at the same time and it just, it, it actually seemed like a logical thing to do because, well, what else were we going to do? And Simon Evans gave me this script and it just seemed really clever. And, and I thought, well, even if, even if everybody's link drops or their lighting is terrible, that's what we're all experiencing anyway. Mm. So actually, it just seemed like quite an authentic thing to do at the time. When it came to it, it really gave you a, a sort of appreciation of what, <laughs> of what everybody else does with sound and lighting and costume yeah. and makeup and everything. Because when you're trying to do it all yourself, I mean, the amount of times I didn't press record on something or I, you know, I played something or a helicopter went over or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, the perils of filming were very, very starkly, you know, thrown into sharp relief. But but I just thought it was, it was just a very clever idea. And I think they pulled it off really well. And I did love playing that original character that... Um, angry angry producer did a bit of uh, improvising there which I know has since become part of the whole story of <laughs> yeah. how much how much was written and how much was improvised I mean it's very meta it's all very meta yeah were you responsible for pressing the button were you recording yourself then yeah so you had to you actually Simon the director would record the zoom like we're doing now so he'd have the, the windows open in his on his screen and that would be recorded you'd also have your your camera in the in the laptop yeah and then you had to record audio on your phone and then he could line up the two wow it was really hard it was a bit like rubbing your stomach yeah. and patting your head at the same time yeah yeah oh that's, <laughs> that's so interesting they look a lot of fun to work with i have to say um yes yeah they are tenant and uh michael sheen yeah <laughs> don't know why david tenant doesn't get a first name just tenant He's just turning. We can't talk about them much more because of uh, yeah. the strike in America. And I was just curious, if we can't talk about, about I wonder if we could talk about the strike. Um, so you're not allowed to do any promotion or basically any work no. at all in America. I suppose that's a lot easier on you because you can work here. And I presume you could work in the theatre over in America still. Yes, it's a different union. Yeah. It's a different union. So, yeah, it, it boils down to whether you're working on a SAG Contract or an equity contract. Right. So if you're on an equity contract and that's my union, then you, you we're not on strike and we're not allowed to strike on somebody else's ballot. That's that's sort of the case. How do you feel about the strike? Because it's, I mean, obviously, I support anyone who chooses to go out and strike. Yeah, absolutely. It is too. really interesting. This, you know, this AI thing. Do you do you think about that? Do you worry about that? In terms of acting, 
Absolutely. In terms of, I mean, it's going to affect absolutely everybody eventually. It's not just this industry and it's not just the actors within this this industry. It will affect the makeup departments. Mm. It will affect all design uh, departments, all the craftspeople that, that have a, you know, a hands-on set builders, set painters, everybody. Because that will, you know, if you take it to the to the extreme, that those people will and me will no longer be needed yeah. or will be needed once and that's it. But just outside of the industry, you just see, you can see it already with, I mean, of course, AI is fantastic and it's exciting and it's, and it's, it's magical sometimes, but you can see how people are being replaced in shops yeah. uh, where, where you, you can walk into a shop and you've got an, I don't know if you class this as AI, but it, to, to me, it all seems to be the same oh, thing. I mean, if it's, I, no, I agree. If it's a kind of intelligence that mm. is taking the place of a real human being. Yeah. And then people are losing jobs. And, and, and obviously, because it always is the way, it's a lot of women's jobs that are going. It's a lot of middle-aged women's mm. jobs that are going. Yeah. I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I think it's a really important moment. I, I absolutely agree. Because, I mean, journalism has been absolutely oh, destroyed yeah. Um, yeah. by... By a lot of things, by the internet in particular, but also by people's, you know, not wanting to pay when they can get stuff for free and all of that. I remember once reading that somebody had created a bit of software that they said would be able to write a news story. And I just thought, I just want to throw up. I really do. And now we're here. Now we are here. Yeah, I yeah, saw. Um, here we are. Certainly for things like columns and, you know, opinion pieces. If you tell it what you want it to say, it will just turn it out. It absolutely terrifies me. Yeah. But I mean, in the end, the the things that I find fascinating, and I'm sure that the things that most people find fascinating about the world are the humans behind the things that we're fascinated by. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, if you're in front of a, a painting, you're excited because you know that once upon a time, a painter stood exactly where mm. you're standing, looking at something that you now can't see and recording that with whatever pigment and he had at his or her disposal. And yeah. it's, or, or just anything handmade, handcrafted and just, designed and thought and you know that we're interested in how it relates to us and how we could achieve that or, or not achieve that and that's a human thing so surely I'm surely eventually eventually we'll all just crave that so much that it'll come back round. well I, I kind of I kind of agree in the sense that people still buy vinyl because people still believe that there's something in the crackly noise as vinyl gets yeah. put on that is worth retaining and therefore that's got to be the same with all new technology yeah people still go to gigs because they want to see they want to see the people playing those instruments yeah. and singing and using their vocal cords and standing next to someone who's you know sweaty and shouting it's that's yeah that's why they go yeah absolutely. and they've got the album they've got it they've they've downloaded it they might have it on vinyl but they'll still go and see the people yeah and you can watch it on YouTube, but it's not the same. In, in fact, I was at a gig where I would say about 75% of people there appeared to be recording it. And I was like, is anyone actually <laughs> enjoying it or is everyone just yeah. recording it? Nina, this has been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. I am joined by Friederica Otto, physicist, philosopher, climate researcher and senior lecturer at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College London, co-founder of the World Weather Attribution Initiative and author of the new book, Angry Weather. Hello, Freddie. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello. I'm not a scientist, as you know, as the listeners know, but this is a very accessible book. 
I'd like to start with the basics, if it's okay with you. What is climate change and how does it happen? The way we use the word climate change nowadays is usually that we mean human-induced climate change. But of course, climate change on the face of it is really just if the climate is, for whatever reason, changing. And climate is average weather. So if you have some some external causes that makes your average weather become different. So what is what used to be the average might be then an extreme and what used to be an extreme might become average. In the past billions and millions of years, there have been a lot of climate changes across the, the Earth happening, driven by changes in the distance between the Earth and the Sun, or on a, on a shorter time scale, also if there's a big volcanic eruption, that means that for a couple of years, temperatures go down. So there are forces like that that can cause climate change. Other things like if you had a vast area of land that was all forest and you deforest that and turn it into desert, that will also change the climate in over that area. And what we mean when we talk about human-induced climate change, it's that we have more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because of our burning of fossil fuels. That means that with more greenhouse gases, that means the atmosphere overall gets warmer and that leads to temperatures overall getting higher and that has all sorts of impacts on weather. And what these exactly are is what I do in my day job. So then my second question is, Despite overwhelming evidence that this is a thing that is happening and that it is man-made, why do some people suggest that this is not the case? Because there are very powerful financial interests in having us continue to burn fossil fuels. The fossil fuel industry has been extremely profitable over the centuries and they knew very early on that their business model leads to climate change. But instead of changing their business model and switch from digging up fossil fuels and burn them or sell them to be burned, they have decided to just brush over the fact that this is going to cause problems in the long run and instead uh, saw doubt about the signs behind climate change. And they have been very successful. So there's a fantastic book written by Naomi Oreskes called The Merchants of Doubt that really shows shows very nicely how all their public campaigning against climate science and against climate scientists as well, but also really just lobbying politicians has led to all of us, including scientists themselves, to still believe that climate science is very uncertain or a very special type of science, which is not true. It's just a very normal science where, you, of course, you have things like confidence intervals and you will never get one exact number out of a measurement but always there's always measurement error and so on like in any other science as well but because fossil fuels are quite profitable if you sell them we have had this very powerful narrative that climate science is very uncertain because that's sort of what also the media and policymakers have been saying for a very long time and the other thing is that, of course, we have known, so the science, well, a woman actually, she found that greenhouse gases are important for the atmosphere and that you have more greenhouse gases 
um, you have higher temperatures. So that's been 200 years ago. So we have known this, this connection for a very long time. But at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the amount of additional greenhouse gases was relatively small. And so you didn't really notice the effects. Now, because we have increased the rate of burning fossil fuels so much in, in recent years that now we actually really feel the impacts quite strongly. So now it's very hard to deny it. But it was quite easy to deny it in the sort of 60s and 70s because the effects were not there visible. So as you've said, the proof is there in terms of these more and more extreme weather events that we're seeing. It's not just the the heat waves. It could be, you know, hurricanes. It can be flooding. It can be excess rainfall. At the moment, there's these wildfires across Europe. This is what your book is about, basically. So can you can you tell me a little bit about the book? So the book, is, it's, it has two parts. The first part is a bit, well, I tried to write it a bit like in Whodunit. So it's about how we can find out whether and to what extent climate change, so our burning of fossil fuels, has altered weather events. And it, it's written around the example of Hurricane Harvey that devastated Houston in, in Texas in 2017, where with my team, we were asking questions, okay, these huge amount of rainfall that have really destroyed a large part of the city, where especially the poor people who live in the city are still um, suffering consequences. What is the role of climate change? And and the, the first part of the book is, is using that example and then explaining with, with lots of other examples for other extreme weather events of how we go about finding this out. So finding out, first of all, what has actually happened, so how much rain fell where, which in the case of Harvey, it was easy to find out because the U.S. has a very good network of weather observation stations and they freely share these weather station data um, with researchers. In other parts of the world, that's often quite difficult where there are either no weather stations or, they, or the data is not shared. And then once we found that out, then we talk about we need climate models that are able to simulate the types of events that we're interested in so in, in the case of Harvey, it had to be tropical cyclones. And yeah, and then it's about how we how we do the experiments. More about sort of what are the kind of questions, not in detail about how we do it. So I myself don't find meteorology that exciting. So <laughs> I'm really more interested in the in the big picture questions. And so that's also what I'm what I'm trying to talk about in the book. And the second part of the book, which I think is the important part, although the first part is necessary because we need sort of proof. But then the second part of the book is the so what. So now we can say that Harvey has been made three times more likely um, because of climate change, a heat wave in the Pacific Northwest last year, no, the year before actually, 2021, would have been basically impossible to occur without climate change. The forest fires in Canada, in, in Quebec earlier this summer, where the smoke really darkened New York, that was at least twice as likely the weather conditions because of climate change. So we can answer these questions now. What do we do with these answers? And so that's what the second part of the book is about. What you're advocating for in the book is a different way of looking at climate change, attribution science. Can you tell me what this is and, and what that means? So attribution science is answering the question whether and to what extent a weather event has been made more likely because of climate change. So basically uh, connecting the effects 
with the causes. And what also the second part of the book very much is about that, on the one hand, we have how climate change affects weather, but then whether a weather event <laughs> turns into a catastrophe strongly depends on who and what is in harm's way. So there's a very, very big role of vulnerability and exposure. So, yeah, as I said, in Houston, it's those people who, who are poor who are still suffering the consequences. There were also bits of the oil industry that were destroyed that has long been rebuilt, and, and that was also a lot of that was insured, whereas a lot of people didn't have insurance. And so for them, it, it was really a, a complete catastrophe. So what this science does and what what climate science used to do was to just look in climate models and into the future and saying, okay, temperatures over the US will increase by 2050 by two degrees and, and so on. But what we are doing with attribution science is to link this climate science, which is quite abstract science in a, in a way, because it, it used to entirely play in model world with daily experiences of the weather. So it's linking climate science and meteorology on the one hand, but also then other things that happen. So with what buildings did people live in? Was there early warning? If so, did it reach everyone? Mm. Which part of the population was not reached? How can you? How could you improve that? All these so people sometimes shrug climate change off a little bit. And I don't just mean the people selling oil or, or, or whatever. They shrug it off a bit. And I think sometimes people can be a bit like, well, you know, I like nice weather. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's fine by me if it's a little bit hotter. It's not that warm here anyway. But I mean, the problem is that heat waves are absolutely devastating, right? So we have a pretty mild climate here, but that's not the case in other parts of the world. And I, I like nice weather. Uh, I live in London, <laughs> so it's not it's fine if it's a few degrees warmer in, in the summer. But that's also not what the issue is. Yeah. The issue is that, of course, not just the average weather is, is changing, but particularly the extremes have already changed. So last year in London, we had a heat wave of 40 degrees. Yeah. That would not have happened without climate change. And during that heat wave, which only lasted two days, 3,000 people died. Wow. So in the UK? Yeah, in the UK. Heat waves are also called the silent killer because there is a huge lack of awareness just how deadly heat waves are because yeah. people don't drop dead on the street. Unlike in a tornado where you immediately obviously see the devastation, you don't see it in a heat wave because it's usually people who already have pre-existing medical conditions, the elderly, outdoor workers, people who... For lots of other reasons, usually already already marginalized, so don't get much attention anyway. But yeah, heat waves are much more deadly than, say, floods. So I guess it's kind of like we have excess winter deaths in the winter, caused by cold temperatures and people not being able to heat their homes properly, for example. And then in the summer, do we have excess summer deaths? Is that a normal thing? Yes, it is a normal thing. But, but 3,000 people is not normal. 3,000 people, it's not normal. It increases massively during during heat waves. Okay. And of course, it's particularly problematic in parts of the world, like London, like Canada, where houses are not built for heat, where people are, are not aware of the risks. That's where the death thoughts are actually particularly high. 
And I suppose this comes into another thing, and certainly like at the other end of the spectrum when you're talking about excess winter deaths, the people who are at most risk are people who live in perhaps older houses which are not as well insulated and yeah, exactly. that, that fall like below the standard. So the people who are most vulnerable, as you say, generally will be people who are already vulnerable for other reasons. Yes, yes, yes exactly. Exactly. And you would think then, well, okay, with increasing temperatures, we have more summer death, but fewer winter death. Unfortunately, that's not how it works, because it's still so cold in the winters, and it will be still so cold. If you can't heat your home, that will still be a problem. But on the other hand, the risk of heat waves has increased so much, and the temperatures and the heat waves that the summer death have really gone through the roof in a way. So it's, it's unfortunately not uh, nicely balancing out. We've industrialised already, right? So we've done that. We've we've put all of our greenhouse gases into the world. So then, does it become a moral conundrum for us to say to other developing economies, "You don't get to do that"? Sorry, we've got to deal with this climate change situation. I think if it would be the case that we uh, we had burned all, all these fossil fuels and that would lead to everyone in our countries living a very high standard life and now we have switched to, to renewable energies and say okay the rest of the world you have to do this as well that would be a very strong moral conundrum but it's not quite that straightforward because burning fossil fuels has not benefited us all that massively and burning fossil fuels is also not benefiting most people in the countries in the developing world that are now exploiting their oil reserves. But it's what is happening is the same thing that, of course, has happened here, that most people pay a very high price for it by having huge... Because fossil fuels is not just greenhouse gases. Uh. That's what we are now talking about. But it's also it's also air pollution. It's working in, in, in extremely hazardous conditions in coal mines. It's it's all of that. And so the moral conundrum is that uh, I think not that it's not about burning fossil fuels. The moral conundrum is that the global north is, is continuing to exploit the global south. And it's now doing that with renewable energies. It's still people in the Congo who will dig out the rarer that are needed for batteries and pay for that with their lives. So it's not as if fossil fuels are really the issue in the moral conundrum and in the exploitation of, of the global south by the global north. It's part of that, but it's not the underlying issue. The underlying issue is this huge global inequality and that it's still basically a colonial organization of, of the world. And it's still that in the decision-making and in, in the opportunities and in the access to markets and the access to finance. The global south is not getting a seat on the table. And to say, oh, well, we can't do anything about climate change because it would be unfair for the global south is really a cop-out argument. I used to work at the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Now, obviously, DEC does not exist anymore. We got rid of it because who needs that? So what is the government doing? here. I, I would guess that your answer would be not enough, but but I wondered if you could tell me, have they dropped the ball on this? 
I think they have dropped the ball. They just approved new gas and oil fields to be uh, to be ex- exploited. That's exactly the worst thing you could do. It's still incredibly difficult in this country to uh, to insulate your home, yeah. even for people who have money. And yeah, we don't even need to talk about people who don't have money because it's just completely impossible. Mm. And that would be an absolute no brainer to have that as a super high priority yet program to improve massively the housing stock in this in this country so that few people die in heat waves but also of course so that people don't have to pay so much for their or for heating their homes so it's it would be for most people an absolute win-win but it's not that politics are made for most no well exactly so, I mean, you've touched on something that people can do there, but the kind of energy efficiency things that you would put in place in a home, like that would have any real kind of impact on the affordability of fuel, like solid wall insulation, solar panels, this kind of thing. Like this is very, very, very expensive, right? So given that a lot of that stuff is out of reach for people, and one of the points that you make in the book as well is that individually I'm, tr- I'm trying to end this on a positive note Freddie, basically but i'm not sure if i can individual people are not going to offset the greenhouse gas emissions of china or india for example so how can we affect change in a positive way because and this is something that obviously people are increasingly anxious about but i think when it starts to look like something that actually you can't really do anything about that's probably when we lose people. So what can we do to affect change? We can do a lot. And it's not as a consumer. So, of course, we can not fly, but that that will not change the structural problems that we have. But we all have a lot of agency to change structural problems. So we all have some sphere of influence. So it might be if you are a mom and you have kids that go to school, you can become a school governor and you can advocate that kids at the school get better things to eat that are better for the kids and better for the climate. Mm-hmm. You can advocate that, that there are different policies of how how kids get to school. You could organize a school bus so not every parent drives there. Or There are lots and lots of things that one can do on a very small scale and that might feel very small but it will show that things can change and that it's possible and others of us um you might be a journalist you can even if you're not a science journalist especially if you're not a science journalist you can write about how how expensive the increase in heat waves and and other extremes is and how much it's cost the country and put pressure through that on governments and voters to to ask for change. You can go and badger your MP and say, why are you not doing anything better? If more people will do that, that would become a problem for them and they would do something. So there's there's a lot of things that we can do. And I think it's the most important power that we all have is to change the narrative because we all still believe that freedom is synonymous to having as much asphalt and concrete around you as is absolutely possible as owning the biggest car you can possibly find. 
And that's just a very stupid idea of freedom. But still, if you think about it, and if you think about it, we all would see, and we all do see that this is not what freedom is. But that's what we make politics for. And I think there's just realizing that and then telling other stories and telling better narratives is something where we all have huge agency. Yeah, absolutely. Freddie, angry weather, heat waves, floods, storms and the new science of climate change is available now. You can go and buy it. It's really good. As I said earlier, it's very accessible and it's very interesting. Are you on any kind of social media so we can follow you and keep up to date with what you're doing? I'm on on what used to be Twitter, and from being in my head still is, is Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm yeah at Freddie Otto, and Freddie spelled in a slightly weird way with just one D and just an I. And also our initiative, World Weather Attribution. You can look at the website WorldWeatherAttribution.org, which is is always about current extreme events and what we can say about them. Brilliant, Freddie. This has been really interesting. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we are kicking off at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sports. So look, we chatted about it last week in our World Cup-themed Bush Telegraph and the situation has escalated. Of course, I'm talking about Louis Rubiales, president of the Spanish Football Federation, and his handsy or indeed mouthy celebration of his country's win in the Women's World Cup. In case you missed it, this involved him grabbing the face and kissing the actual mouth of Jenny Hermoso, one of the team's top players. A quick recap. Hermoso said she didn't enjoy it. Rubiales said, lol, you're overreacting. Then he apologised. As it became clear, the general consensus was he'd done the wrong thing. Then the Spanish government called for his resignation. Then he said he wouldn't resign. Then Hermoso said it was non-consensual. Then he said she was lying and might even take legal action against her. Then blah, 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 blah. Since then, he's been provisionally suspended by world governing body FIFA Then the Spanish FA said an investigation had been opened. Then Spain's top criminal court said it had also opened a preliminary investigation into the incident. I mean, wow. Fuck knows what will have happened by the time you hear this on Wednesday. For Rubiales and other men, I think there's a valuable lesson to be learned here, apart from obviously don't kiss women who don't want to be kissed. Say you're sorry, you didn't mean to upset anyone, you'll try harder in the future not to be a bellend. History suggests this is usually enough, to be honest. I have a couple of other reflections on this. One, that it's a shame that we're not talking about the women who won the World Cup, or indeed how astonishing it is that they won, given the absolute shit show they've had to deal with from the Royal Spanish Football Federation way before this happened. And two, for the whole, like, oh, football has a problem with women, articles that are doing the rounds, like, go fucking figure, society has a problem with women. In football, they're not even hiding in plain sight. But let's not mess around here. Let's look at the statistics around violence against women or convictions for sexual assaults, etc, etc. Numerous other things. Why should football care when the world plainly doesn't care in so many ways? Now, I'm not trying to let football off the hook here. But seriously, how can this be a surprise? That's all I have to say about it at the moment. I'll no doubt have other hot takes in due course along with everyone else, I'm sure. Let's return to celebrating elite athletic achievement then with the Athletic World Championships. 
There's a lot to look forward to at next year's Olympics in Paris. I mean, isn't there always? But I'm not just talking about the hip hop horses. Team GB equaled its best ever athletics world championships haul of 10 medals in Hungary last week. The last time we took 10 medals home was in 1993 in the golden era of Linford Christie, Sally Gunnell and friend of the podcast, Colin Jackson. So what we've not been talking about while we've been talking about Rubiales is, for example, Katerina Johnson-Thompson's second world championship title in the heptathlon. Johnson-Thompson held off a challenge by the USA's Anna Hall to win by just 20 points, which is the narrowest margin in world championship history. She also won the title in 2019, but didn't have such a great time at the Tokyo Olympics in 2021. Obviously, those Olympics should have been in 2020. And as we've discussed on the podcast before, the training cycle for athletes is built around peaking at the Olympics. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for next year. Other great successes for Team GB at the Champs were 21-year-old Keely Hodgkinson, who took a silver in the 800 metres, also a silver in the mixed 4x100m relay and a bronze for the women's 4x100m relay team. I managed to actually catch that one as the championships were drawing to a close on Sunday evening and it was tremendously exciting. They looked like they were absolutely on course to get the silver, but the Dutch team came from nowhere to win it, pushing us back into third place behind Jamaica. Now, as one door closes, another opens, no pun intended. The US Open got underway on Monday and in more exciting news for Brits, British qualifier Lily Miyazaki won her first round draw against Margarita Batova. Can she replicate the success of previous wildcard winner Emma Raducanu, who's still out with injuries? I think we can just be happy for the initial win and hope for the best with her second round match against 15th seed Belinda Bencic. For her part, she says the financial reward of making it through that first round will enable her to travel more with a coach, which is great news. Yet to play, as I record, are Katie Balter and Jodie Burridge. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what the fuck am I going to do with all these calendars? (laughs) It's all happening. (laughs) Just another joke that people can not see. Great start, Hannah. Anyway, this week we watched 1963's British New Wave film, Billy Liar. What was British New Wave for anyone wondering? Well, it was a short film movement that ran from 1959 to 1963 and was basically a mashup of French New Wave and kitchen sink drama. The film is based on the 1959 comic novel of the same name by Keith Waterhouse which had already been adapted into a successful play starring Albert Finney in the lead role. The film stars Sir Tom Courtney, who had been Finney's understudy. It was also one of the first major roles for 1960s icon Julie Christie, although there's actually quite a sad story behind this. She replaced the actress Topsy Jane as Liz when a mental health crisis led to her pulling out. All the scenes she had appeared in had to be reshot, and it's actually, like I say, quite a sad story because... Jane's health apparently never recovered. Mm. Billy Liar was filmed in Cinescope and directed by John Schlesinger, who later went on to win an Oscar for directing Midnight Cowboy. Set in a fictional Yorkshire town, it was mostly filmed in Bradford. And just as Waterhouse's book is often praised for capturing Britain on the brink of huge societal change, the film shows the huge physical change also underway capturing the real-life demolition of much of Bradford's pre-war town, something that was happening across the UK. 
In fact, the swinging demolition ball motif has been replicated in many things set in the 1960s, including Widnell and I and our friends in the North. Because to say that Billy Lyre is influential would be understating Mm. it somewhat, and not just in film, across the arts in general. 1980s and 90s indie musicians couldn't get enough of it. (laughs) And references to quotes from or samples of Billy Lyre can be found in The Smiths' William It Was Really Nothing, Ride's Twisterella and Saint-Antienne's You're In A Bad Way, to name but a few. In terms of awards, it was nominated for six BAFTAs and in the year 2000, it was included in the BFI's poll of 100 favourite British films of the 20th century. Billy Lyre's arrival in American cinemas was catastrophically timed, however, (laughs) coming a few weeks after the assassination of Kennedy, but a few months before the Beatles took America by storm, sparking a fascination over there with British culture. When Criterion acquired the film in the 90s, they re-released it in the US, where it had a very successful, if limited, run and got great reviews. Okay, let's do some plot. It's a busy Saturday for 19-year-old Billy Fisher, who lives with his working class slash lower middle class parents. They're not working class at all. I feel like they're very much lower middle class. Yeah. Like, that house is enormous. I've got a question about this that I'm going to come to. And his nan, all of whom think that he should just grow the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's the plot. (laughs) He works as an undertaker's clerk, a job he hates and does, well, worse than badly, much to the desperation of his boss, who is played by Leonard Rossiter. Billy's also desperate for a shag. And this, combined with being totally, if not pathologically, comfortable with constantly lying, means he's currently engaged to two women. Not even Billy wants to be Billy, and he spends most of his time in the imaginary country of Ambrosia. But along comes Liz, a girl who does what she likes, inviting Billy to move to London with her. But does he have the will, the confidence, or the maturity to go? So let's start with whether or not you've seen this, read this play. I know quite a lot of people did it at school. I haven't ever read it or seen it, which is a bit of a surprise to me because it is uh, mad in my wheelhouse. But I have heard a lot about it as well. So it's uh, it's baffling to me why I haven't looked it up. I mean, I've probably been too busy watching Indiana Jones for the 87th time. But I can only apologise to Billy Liar that I haven't seen it before. Yeah, that's interesting because I obviously knew what Billy Liar was because of the Smiths mm. and Ride. Also, can I just say, you said Saint Etienne, and I'd just like the listeners to know that I pronounce it Saint Etienne. Me too, Mick. Me <laughs> oh, too. good. Okay, I thought it was just another Mickey Northern pronunciation or something. Do you know what? It was such a long time since I'd said it that I just couldn't even remember how they pronounced their names. I'm not even sure I'd ever heard anyone say it out loud before. <laughs> but yeah, I was about 30. I was sharing a flat with my best friend and... He was talking about Billy Liar. He's from the North. And then he just couldn't believe that I'd never actually seen it. So I watched it then. And I have to say, the first time I watched it, I was absolutely blown away by it. Jen? No, I've I've heard of it, but I had absolutely no prior knowledge of it. Should we start with Sir Tom Courtney and just get that out of the way? Oh, absolutely how amazingly good he is in this. Brilliantly for a podcast, I'm making, well, kind of a heart shape with my hands. He is a powerhouse in this. What a phenomenal performance because the character is 
batshit. What he has to do, mm. all of the different aspects he has to bring together and still have him as a believable human. It's just phenomenal. What a performance. Absolutely blew me away. Yeah. I mean, he's very good in it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what else can I say, really? You've got a face that means I'm going to direct the next question at you. Right. Is, Billy is a literary archetype, isn't he? You could compare him to characters like, for example, Holden Caulfield in uh, Catcher in the Rye. Interestingly, I didn't ever read Catcher in the Rye until I was an adult and I hated it. Oh, I know me, that you're the too, same with that. Too, yeah. But I didn't feel like I'd missed the boat when I watched Billy Liar. I actually find him, I find him a lot more sympathetic, possibly because he comes from a, a sort of a, a lowlier background, as it were. What do you make of Billy? I don't think you're going to like what I have to say here. I couldn't stop thinking about the butcher boy when i was watching it i was gonna bring up the butcher boy funnily enough so off you go yeah well that is it really i mean i guess he is sympathetic in some ways but he's not the nicest character in the world is he he's stringing along three women like he's he's you know two women is well Liz right, does two women likes. because he likes the third one but no but also you know. she doesn't care whether he goes or not she's gonna go anyway i would still argue that his antics are questionable but like towards two women okay but two's enough isn't it for him to be a dick mm. he's a bit of a dickhead you know but then i guess in a lot of ways when he's young and he doesn't like what he's doing and he's disillusioned and he wants to be he, he feels like he wants to be somewhere else doing something else or whatever but he can't actually as you say go through with it in the end so i guess he is sympathetic in some ways but he's also a bit of a prick you know when it cuts to him with the with the gun and he's shooting everyone and whatever it's just i just mm. kept thinking about the butcher boy and being like oh well, Billy Liar is an angry young man. He's the archetypal mm. angry young man. There's so yeah. much rage there, as much as this is for me, and I think for Hannah as well. Uh, but I won't put words in your mouth, Hannah. So for me, a very funny film. It made me mm. laugh a lot, and yeah. I think it's beautifully written, and I think Tom Courtney is just incredible. And Julie Christie, I think, really, everyone's really good in it, but they stand out to me. But he is he's angry, and like Hannah says, Billy doesn't want to be Billy. Billy's the most furious with Billy out of everyone. He just feels he can't get anything right. He's trapped himself in this cycle of lying. And while I don't feel sorry for him because the fallout of that mainly affects other people, he isn't happy about it. He's not having a nice time. Yeah, but I feel like there's loads of horrible people who probably aren't very happy with themselves. So I agree. It's the fact that it's a comedy that makes it not the butcher's boy that rescues it from that. And it's Mm. the fact that he only imagines that he would do these things. Yeah. But I think the way that the film really captures that sense of of change, it feels within context like he stands for something. He stands for all teenagers in the 1960s to a certain degree. Mm. Whereas I never got that feeling with the Butcher Boy. I never got the feeling that he represents anything. He was just this. Just oh, this just horrible. horrible yeah, just, <laughs> yeah, just awful. I, I think that's probably a fair... I mean, it was it was nowhere near as unpleasant to watch as, as The Butcher Boy, like, to be clear on that. I'm not... <laughs> I am, well, quite. But yeah, it just... It, it, yeah, it just reminded me of it. I suppose with The Butcher Boy, also it is in that kind of like Cold War era, isn't it? Like on the brink of change and, and things. Are, so that that's another kind of like comparison, I guess, which hadn't occurred to me at the time. That change is sort of... It's literally happening around Billy. You can sort of physically see Mm. it. I want to talk about the ending because Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian, who... Oh, Peter. Exactly. That's exactly it. Hates this film. In fact, he's written a piece about how much he Mm. hates this film. 
It's his most overrated film ever. Privately educated Southern man, Peter Bradshaw, really hates this film. And I can't help but feel that a lot of it is because he's misunderstood the ending of it or misinterpreted the ending of it. I don't know if you read that piece, but he basically hates it because he says, Billy walking back up the road and obviously he goes back into an ambrosia fantasy and he starts smirking and he's happy and he's not going to be happy and I, I thought well firstly it kind of suggests that it's impossible to be happy in the north <laughs> do you know what i mean it suggests that that that's it this is his one opportunity and he's fucked it and that's like billy's life forever when in fact i'm sure it's perfectly possible to live very very happily in bradford for the rest of your life if you want to and the second thing is i don't think that's what happens i think billy realizes that he should have, I mean, he knows he should have gone. In fact, that bit where he's just waiting for the train to leave is is almost excruciating. But <laughs> that he, it doesn't show that he's happy. It just shows that he's no. vanished back into Ambrosia. That's where he's going to live now. You know, he's not going to live in Bradford. So I don't know what you made of, of that. I read that very much, the ending, I read that very much as like, he's not happy. Like, Agreed. I feel like he's not happy. One, he disappears straight into Ambrosia, like you yeah. said. Yeah. But also it's his first kind of sense of duty maybe, that he returns home. Because it's the first time his parents haven't been like, either book up or get out. It's the first time his mum has seemed to need him. And Mm. so he does give up. But I'm not saying that giving up isn't easy to Billy because I think he's terrified of change and doesn't really know what to do with it, which is why he lives in his imaginary world. Yeah, agreed. Okay, Mickey, when I was going to use that mickling or muckling thing, (laughs) when I was Googling it and I thought I better be... You know, I better be sure that I was using it properly because I was going to say rotten or not rotten, obviously. I found a dissertation by a man at Harvard called Neither Mickling Nor Muckling, Northern Reflexivity in the Novels of the British New Wave. Now, I didn't read all of it because I'm not that committed to rated or dated, (laughs) but I did scan it and his thesis appears to be that we audiences, critics, whatever, spend way too much time talking about social mobility and class and not enough time on the sheer northernness of Billy Liar. And I wondered, as a woman from the north, how you felt about that. I loved its northernness. I think, I mean, it obviously speaks to social mobility and change, that kind of post-war generation of angry young men and unsettled young women as well the women in this are also like the young women are certainly like we don't know what to do with our lives they're either falling into patterns that their parents have done like helen i think she's called who won't even let him put his hand on a knee or they're trying to be promiscuous and seeing how that fits even though that clearly doesn't make them happy like barbara i think it is who's a barmaid Or they're Liz, who is the one who feels like she is taking this sort of freedom seriously and doing what she wants, right? So there is an aspect of that, and that's important for its time. But I love the northernness. I loved how recognisable Bradford still is, despite all of the change that is clearly going on in the background. It's gorgeous to see something so big, so important, such a cult film set in the north. And yeah, like, you can be happy in the North. And I love the, the accent and the language. I just really loved it. I loved being in the North for an hour and a half. And also it's rooted in the North in the sense that, you know, Tom Courtney's from Hull. You know, mm-hmm. it's written by a man from the North. Schlesinger's not a Northerner, but it is populated by a lot of Northerners as well. Oh, yeah, it's it's distinctly Northern. It mm. smells Northern. It looks Northern. It, yeah. You know, tastes and feels Northern. <laughs> 
we were just mentioning the women. Yeah, let's talk about Liz. Liz is the one who belongs in a French New Wave film, isn't yes. she? The way she sort of mm. arrives just tripping along. Do you know what? I don't even think she gets as much screen time as the other two, but no. she, she is the one that definitely definitely stands out. I mean, Billy says she does what she likes. She's crazy. I mean, everyone's clearly very, very drawn to her and not just because she's really attractive. I mean, she makes going to Doncaster for a weekend sound really, really exciting, <laughs> doesn't she? I'm like, oh, Doncaster, I should try that. Liz loved it. Why did she go? Because it's there. Come on. Doncatraz, that's what we used to call it. Anyway. Have you got any thoughts on Liz, Jen? I don't know. She's sort of like the cool girl archetype, isn't She's she? She's manic or pixie the, dream girl, yeah, isn't manic she? manic pixie dream girl, yeah, mm. I would say. I mean, she doesn't come out of it badly because obviously the the idea is that it's cool and she's great and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I guess in some ways she is. But it is it's still quite male gazy, I think. For sure. By men. So, you know, that stands to reason, doesn't it? But it's like a, it's like a male standard of like what they want this impossibly brilliant woman to be. Because he does let her down. I do agree with Jen that he is. If he had the chance to string Liz along, he would absolutely string Liz mm. along. Because when they meet at the dance, she says, I thought you were going to call me. And he says, well, I knew I'd see you here. So she does Mm. have expectations of Billy that he is letting down. And whether, you know, anyone can let down your expectations is a whole different podcast. And I'm sure we'll have it at some point. But I think Jen's spot on there in that Liz absolutely has agency. So when she gets on that train at the end and he doesn't join her, we know she'll be fine because she she does what she's like and she's crazy. But she is also let down. I think she she does yeah. a little that her face is like oh she's not surprised but I think she is a bit let down. Does she know that he's engaged to two other women? No. So then she is letting her down. Uh, yeah, except I don't think I don't think she cares. I think part of the reason that Billy doesn't get on the train is that he knows that actually Liz isn't necessarily the person that's going to stick with him. That Liz might get to London. And someone might say, do you want to come to Paris? And she'd go, yeah, shit, yeah, let's do that. She would have done worse out of the deal if Billy had got on the train. Absolutely oh, yeah. agree 100%. with you. But I don't yeah. think that means that she wasn't let down by him. No. And I think also, like, the idea that she is, like, a man's imagination of what... So, like, oh, she's crazy. She does what she wants. Do you know what I mean? It's like a... is How, how crazy is that, really? I mean, I know, like, obviously we're talking about however many years ago god 70 years ago so 70 no, 60, 60, years, 60 ago. years ago my maths is terrible today i recorded <laughs> something earlier when i said 1993 was 20 years ago and i was like no it isn't so we're talking about 60 years ago do you know what i mean it's it is very much like i think the representation of her is kind of both dated and also just something that has persisted forever and ever and ever I think Hannah nailed it almost when she said she's very much the woman from the new wave, the French new wave yeah. cinema, right? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. what, like, northern lad in Bradford wouldn't like a sexy French lady just going off and doing what she pleases. But that said, what she what she pleases isn't that, you know, it isn't that wild. Like I said, she's, she's just going to Doncaster for the weekend <laughs> and she got on a train to London. It's not that wild. I think what it does is show how... Shocking it was when women in the 60s started claiming their rights. So what it's saying is Billy's like, oh, my God, she does what she likes. She's crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, this is he's never met a woman like her. So I think it's slightly unfair to call her a manic pixie dream girl because it's not the same as when somebody meets someone in 2023 and what they're doing is being kooky and different. What she's doing is being her own person. Yeah. 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 
I'm going to ask the rated or dated question now because I think it's quite a, it's one of those ones that's got quite a, a long and complicated answer. So, or it certainly does for me. Billy Liar, rated or dated? It is dated. It is dated because it was, it's of its time. It's so of its time. It is a cult film about its time, right? But yeah. oh, it's rated. It's still very clever. I still laughed a lot. I still think the performances are incredible. And I still think it has something to speak to social mobility and mm. the way people think of the North. Agreed. I think it's dated in the best way possible in that it is a piece of history. Like a you time know, capsule. Yeah, exactly it. It is a time capsule. So that's a really good word for it. But it's absolutely rated because it's th- not only because I, I think it's funny and I think Tom Courtney's brilliant in it and Leonard Rossett is great in it. And, yes. Yeah. You know, those conversations when his nan first takes ill and all of that is just so mad funny and, and entertaining and actually kind of real. I think the dynamic, the family dynamic is something pretty recognisable. People being frustrated with their teenage boys. But I also think it's it's sort of timeless in like it like you say in the in the sense of of social mobility of how far London still feels from the north mm-hmm. and so I'm going to say rated absolutely Jen I agree with what you said like it is dated because it is of its time and there's there's no getting away from that I didn't love it uh, as a film it didn't hold my attention terribly well but. It's just me. I don't think I don't think it's fair for me to say it's a shit film because it didn't engage me that much. Do you know what I mean? So I'll say I think it's dated. It is. <laughs> I can't make a decent gun noise, and also I'm not very violent, so maybe that was like a, a glitter gun, Jen, a glitter gun, you. Okay, I'll take that. What are we watching next week? Well, Hannah, um, I know this because I've already seen it. Watched it. You in have already watched right? it. And you already know what you want to say about it. So uh, yeah, more calendars. We're going to watch. 2003's Calendar Girls. Hope we're all going to have some Chelsea Stands buns up, at the ready. Takes off dressing gown. Holds bourbons <laughs> over nipples. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.